This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. to you, or good day to you, wherever you might be. Welcome to Radio Orbit. It's Sunday, the first Sunday of the month of February, February 6th, 2005. This is Mike Hagan. I'm your host, as always, every Sunday morning on Radio Orbit from, uh, from 2 a.m. until 5 a.m. for three hours, and in fact, this morning I'll be with you actually for five hours. I guess that's the the deal tonight. Gail had to do six hours straight, and I got to do five hours straight. I don't know if it's the flu or if it's the the moon. Speaking of the moon, we just got back from Nova Lunacy. 
down there at uh, at the East Side Tavern. What an incredible show! Uh, Nova Lunacy playing down there with another band called Lux. And uh, I actually didn't uh, get to hear too much of Lux, but I got to see the whole last set of Nova Lunacy, and they rocked. It was great. And we'll actually play a little bit of that coming up in the next few minutes here. Uh, in the meantime, uh, thanks for joining me. As always, let's say a couple quick thank yous. Uh, we had some great response for the program last week. A lot of people appreciated uh, Nick Cook, and uh, we were real fortunate to have him on the air. Nick and I have been talking over the last week, and we're already sort of planning another show. He's working on another book. And uh, for those who missed it, uh, check it out in the archives. You can go down to the website at www.radioorbit.com, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. There's only one O in the middle there. Sort of shares the O of those two words. And uh, anyway, go listen to that interview from last week with, uh, with uh, Nick Cook, the former aviation editor from Jane's Defense Weekly. Quite an astounding interview for people interested in uh, new technologies and uh, uh, things like renewable, clean, alternative energies, those sorts of things we were talking about. So anyway, uh, what do we got going tonight? We've got Kent Stedman going to be on the air in about a half an hour here. I don't know, 45 minutes, something like that. We'll get Kent on the air. We'll be talking about the sun, lots of interesting things happening in the skies above our heads, as usual. So Kent will be on the air to talk about that. We'll probably do things a little bit different tonight. I think we'll probably do space weather towards the end of the hour so Kent can kind of uh, uh, pitch in and uh, go along with that as we do that. So we'll probably do a couple of news stories up front, and um, we'll uh, push space weather out to the, uh, toward the end of the hour, okay? In the meantime, uh, thanks to everybody who pledged money to help this program and help the radio station last week. There were fewer than I would have liked, but uh, those that did, I really appreciate it. And um, hopefully next time around, if you're still listening to the program and uh, if you um, appreciate what you're hearing, you can um, maybe make a bigger effort. So anyway, uh, that's uh, news for the past, and we're not talking about the past on this program. We talk about the present and we talk about the future. So let's move forward and... uh, um, before we play that Nova Lunacy song, um, I just want to say thanks real fast uh, to uh, Gail, who just handed off uh, six hours of blues and lots of other music. I uh, appreciate the time that you put in here, Gail, and I'm uh, sort of carrying the same baggage this morning. Uh, Carol's a little bit sick and under the weather, uh, so I'll be doing her show as well this morning from 5 o'clock until 7 o'clock, so... Anybody who's out there looking for marathon, uh, Mike, now's the time, all right? I don't know what we'll do during Jewish Spectrum, but it'll be interesting, I can tell you that. It probably won't be typical. So, anyway, uh, upcoming guests. Oh, you know, um, I got a hold. Actually, a guy got a hold of me this week. You know, it's interesting because uh, it turns out the, the World Wide Web is something else because I have my shows up on the web now, as a lot of you know. And... Um, uh, just by osmosis, you know, uh, things move from here to there and back over there, and pretty soon they're all around the world and all around the web. Well, anyway, I got an email from a guy who found a link to my website from uh, a gentleman whose name is Hilly Rose. Uh, Hilly Rose does a, uh, a radio program as well. In fact, sort of a big-time uh, radio guy in the alternative genre. He's uh, used to do... Um, 
I think he used to substitute for Art Bell now and again. But anyway, he has his own program, and apparently he has a link on his website to my website. And I don't know how or why, but I appreciate it, Hilly. Thanks. And uh, this gentleman, George Erickson, uh, who is a uh, archaeologist and a historian and a real interesting researcher who's done some great stuff uh, um, right here in North America. You know, we look around the world oftentimes and say, wow, there's incredible things in Giza, in Egypt, and there's incredible things in uh, Peru, and there's incredible things in China and in Japan underwater and, you know, all these different uh, uh, monolithic monuments and mega societies that existed many, many years before history. Well, that was going on in this continent, too, right here in North America. There are tremendous uh, terraforms and uh, mounds and all kinds of different things that are aligned to the stars and um, uh, pyramids and, I mean, literally all kinds of things that are right here in North America. And uh, George Erickson is a guy that has investigated a lot of that, and we're going to be talking to George. Um, he, has, he actually has a special that's coming up on the History Channel. Um, I think it's going to be uh, aired on the 21st of February, just like uh, three or two weeks from now. So actually, I'm going to air that interview with George on the 20th, so anybody who likes what they hear, they can uh, check him out the following day on the History Channel when they... Um, when they air the special that uh, that they've done with him, it's it has to do with uh, with the lost continent of Atlantis and uh, uh, connections to the ancient Maya and some really interesting ideas. So George Erickson will be coming on the air in just a couple of weeks here. Um, uh, again, thanks to Nick Cook uh, last week. That was a great program. And uh, as I said, Nick has a new book coming out. Um, we don't know the details about it, but he's working on it. And uh, him and I are going to do another show here, um, hopefully not before, uh, well, before, before the middle of the year, probably in the next few months or so. Okay. Uh, thanks for the emails. Thanks for listening over the web. All the people who are listening over the web, I appreciate it. It's obviously catching on a little bit because, uh, as I say, I'm starting to get uh, contacted from lots of people all around. Sometimes it's just to say hi, and uh, sometimes it says, you suck, and sometimes it says, I like what you're doing. But regardless, people are hearing about what we're doing here, and uh, that's the whole idea. And the whole idea is to get the information out there and then let people do what they will with it so uh thanks for listening over the web tell your friends about it okay uh like i said we'll do space weather at the end of the hour we've got george erickson coming up in a couple of weeks we've got sean montgomery coming up i finally got the the second uh cd um in the uh, uh the series of tapes that sean has produced on royal raymond rife the medical and scientific genius who was uh um, doing things in the early 1900s that have yet to be matched today. And uh, we'll talk about Royal Raymond Rife uh, with Sean Montgomery in a few weeks here. Uh, we've got uh, Michael Heisen. I've been talking to Dr. Michael Heisen. If you remember, you may or may not have been listening to the program, but last November we did a show with uh, a marine biologist out in Hawaii whose name is Michael Heisen, him and an associate of his named Paradise Newland. Well, um, we've uh, been in contact since then, and they've got some new and interesting information to share. So uh, Michael and Paradise are going to be back on the air in the next month or two here. And they've also put me in touch with uh, a couple of associates of theirs who they're doing some sort of cooperative research with. And um, uh, I'm going to have them on the air as well. It's a, uh, a woman whose name is Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher. Uh, and 
uh, Nassim, and I forget Nassim's last name, and I apologize for that right now, but they're doing some incredible work um, in uh, uh, some of the fields that are directly related to the things that uh, Dr. Heisen is working on. So we'll have them on the air as well. Probably, we'll probably do Heisen and uh, Paradise uh, Newland. Uh, one week, and then we'll follow them up with Dr. Rauscher and uh, and Nassim after that. So that's coming up. We've got Rick Strassman. Dr. Rick Strassman wrote an incredible book called DMT, the Spirit Molecule, which goes into the scientific uh, definition and implications of the compound DMT, which is found endogenous in the human brain and in the brains of many animals on this planet and also in uh, the uh, cellular biology of many plants and of course DMT is a tremendously potent psychoactive substance that when smoked or when ingested orally with the right uh, concoction uh, will bring on a tremendous hallucinogenic effect uh, which has been reported for many many years by the shamanistic cultures in Central and South America, <clears throat> in Africa, and in many places around the world. Uh, DMT is a real important substance, and it was pretty much uh, marginalized and made illegal. Interestingly enough, as I said, it's in every one of our brains. Uh, so the fact that it's a Schedule One drug, uh, I don't know what that says. I guess we're all carrying. Um, and I guess uh, they just make people illegal, maybe. Maybe that's the solution. So anyway, Rick Strassman, uh, uh, one of the first physicians, one of the first doctors uh, to delve into the psychoactive substances and hallucinogenic plants uh, in a long time, uh, for about 30 years, it's been considered taboo. And uh, there's some real beneficial and some real valuable stuff that comes out of this research and uh, I urge uh, people to keep an open mind when it comes to that stuff because it's one of those same old stories where what you think you know about it probably isn't true. So uh, Dr. Rick Strassman coming up in a few weeks as well uh, and in the same vein we'll be talking to Stephen Buhner. Uh, Stephen Buhner has written many many books over the years uh, but he's a uh, uh, an ethnobotanist by train and by trade and uh, his most recent book is called The Lost Language of Plants. And we'll be talking to Stephen about some of the same ideas that we touch on with, with Rick Strassman that we've touched on in the past with uh, Dennis McKenna and, uh, and his brother Terrence and some of these other guys that uh, were really, 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 really ahead of the curve uh, when it comes to the ideas of these things. So anyway, all that stuff coming up and more this year, 2005, on Radio Orbit. Uh, in the meantime, check this out. This is Nova Lunacy. As I said, they just played tonight with Lux down at the east side, and uh, I was lucky enough to check them out. So uh, you guys are now lucky enough to check it out, too. This is called, uh, I don't know what it's called. It's the ninth track on the CD, and it rocks. Nova Lunacy, KOPN Radio Orbit.
Yeah. All right, Nova Lunacy. That was called Pitchfork. That's from their independently released CD, Disconnect. Incredible local band. Some great, uh, some great stuff coming from those, uh, from those guys and that girl. So, uh, yeah. Speaking of them, uh, my buddy Casey uh, turned me on to Nova Lunacy. He actually had them in the station, uh, in the studio, on his program which is called Blues in the Night, but he does a little special uh, section of that show now and again that we we like to call. What do we call that, Casey? Well, uh, now and again is a little bit far-fetched for the moment, Mike, because <laughs> that was actually the first time that I had tried it. It's uh, I'm trying to call it Open Mic Radio. Open Mic Radio. Well, anyway, it was real cool. and uh, A lot of fun. Yeah, so those guys were down here, and we're going to be encouraging some other... Uh, uh, local musicians to come down here and get more involved at the station. Casey and I and a few other people down here have some interesting ideas to uh, get a little bit more involved with the the scene in right. uh, Columbia because there is a lot of great stuff going on here. And um, anyway, yeah, great show tonight, huh, Casey? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, Nova Lunacy, who you just heard, played with a band called Lux. Lux is also a uh, local local band that happens to be playing this coming up Friday at the Blue Note with a band called Bachman, right, um, right, right. formerly known as Bachman's Ufio. Right, and those guys are going to be on your show Wednesday. This, this coming Wednesday. This coming right, Wednesday. right. Now, I think they're not going to actually be playing any music right. uh, this time. We're going we're gonna to play a few songs from their, uh, from their CD. Um, but uh, I, think, I think they actually said, Casey, in March or April, they'd like to come back, though, uh, with, uh, with a couple of the guys from Joe Stickley, actually, and do... Do an acoustic set here, so we, yes, yeah, so we got that to look forward great. to. That's what I'm. Uh, that's what I'm really looking forward to with this open mic radio. It gives the opportunity to a lot of local musicians to come and play at the station live on the air for those listening, which is a lot of fun. Which is a lot of fun for me because I sit where you're sitting right now, Mike, <laughs> and I'm, I'm listening to this fantastic live music on acoustic instruments. That's absolutely breathtaking. Yep, no doubt. And uh, so uh, for the people out there listening, uh, if you're in uh, the local music scene or whatever, make sure you uh, get a hold of us and uh, try to get involved because we're, we're, we're very open uh, to spreading this thing around because we really want to uh, really want to encourage the scene around here. And uh, with that in mind, the number down here at the station is area code 573-874-5676. One eight hundred eight nine five five six seven six, and uh, my email address is orbitradio o r b i t r a d i o at aol dot com, and the website, as I said before, www.radioorbit.com, Just one o in the middle there. So, all right, case. Uh, when, when's your show Wednesday? It's Wednesday. Wednesday from ten to midnight. And if uh, if anybody does know of local musicians that would like to be on the show. They can email me as well at bluesinthenight895 at yahoo.com. So feel free and get a hold of me and let me know who's willing to play, and we'll get them to play. It'll be great. All right, right on. Bluesinthenight895 at yahoo.com. That's Casey. His show's Wednesday nights from 10 to midnight. Blues in the Night. Check it out, okay? All right, thanks, Case. I'll uh, catch up to you a little bit later. Stick yeah, around. Cool. Uh, uh, Kent's going to be on the air here in just 15 minutes or so. It's going to be incredible. We're talking about old soul tonight, and uh, the sun has some interesting things in store for us, as uh, as she always does.
So, okay, um, what do I want to talk about here? You know, uh, with regard to Nick Cook, uh, this was something that I wanted to, uh, wanted to bring up. Uh, I didn't talk about it too uh, in-depth during the program. Uh, it just uh, sort of triggered me, and I went and did a little research uh, this week after, afterwards. And it has to do with, uh, if you remember during that interview, uh, Nick talked about a particular line of uh, research that was going on in Poland uh, at an underground facility there, and he called it the Bell. Uh, this was the uh, actual the German name was called Die Glocke. And uh, that's the German word for bell. But anyway, the bell was this uh, uh, real strange project that nobody really uh, to this day has defined. Uh, and we really don't know what, uh, um, what they were trying to do. But one of the things that was documented was that the metal mercury, the uh, liquid metal mercury, was involved in that technology. And whenever I hear about mercury... I think about alchemy, and uh, mercury is a very interesting element in that you can never see mercury, for example. You can only see the world that surrounds it. It's reflective, like a mirror. Um, in the same way, we have the idea of the microcosm and the macrocosm reflected in this small bead of mercury that beads up on your on your desk or on your table when you when you pour it out but at the same time when it's when it's connected back to the other individual beads of mercury it flows again so there's some really interesting ideas about mercury both on a uh, on a physical level and on a metaphysical level and uh, this is something that has been written and talked about over many many millennia by some real bright people. So when I heard Mercury, I was thinking that there had to be a little bit more to that story. Well, I also remembered something that I had read a long time ago from the Hindu Vedas. This is a, the old, very old, in fact, who knows how old. Some people talk about this history going back 25,000, 30,000 years. Um, but anyway, historical writings, historical texts from India and um, there's one in particular, and I'm going to read a clip from you here, but uh, this is only uh, one reference, but there was a whole bunch of it. Uh, so anyway, we have uh, this interesting connection, uh, this reference to alchemy, to the ancient Hindu Vedas, um, and these machines that they called vimanas. And as I said, some say this history goes back maybe 25, 30,000 years, maybe further. Um, there's a whole bunch more. If you're interested in this, send me an email because uh, I've got a whole bunch of information. I'm just going to read a little bit of it to you now. But um, this is from, uh, this is all written in Sanskrit, by the way. This is the language that it was originally written in. But this is from a, uh, um, a document that's called the Samarangana Sutradhara. And in that particular document, it is written as, as follows. It says, Strong and durable must the body of the, of the Vimana be made, like a great flying bird of light material. Inside, one must put the mercury engine with its iron heating apparatus underneath. By means of the power latent in the mercury, which sets the driving whirlwind in motion, 
A man sitting inside may travel a great distance in the sky. The movements of the vimana are such that it can vertically ascend, vertically descend, move slanting forwards and backwards. With the help of the machines, human beings can fly in the air and heavenly beings can come down to earth. Now, this is just one reference in this one particular document that I found, and there's a whole, there's a whole lot more in that same document about these flying machines and uh, the way that mercury was used uh, somehow as a power source or something like that. Uh, so anyway, uh, this is something that I talked to Nick Cook about, and we're kind of looking further into it because who knows, maybe the stuff that we were talking about in Germany last week, uh, you know, were the Nazis digging this far back into history, searching for this, uh, for this tech. We know that they were occultists. We know that uh, Hitler and the boys had a great interest in Egypt and the mysteries of the secret schools that came from these ancient times. Uh, there's, there's this amazing book that's called The Morning of the Magicians, and it talks about how the Germans disputed the idea that uh, further back in history, that, that, that the further back in history a civilization was, that the less technologically advanced it must be. They called that, uh, uh, they called that BS. And they believed that there was much, much, much to be learned, uh, to be learned from the ancients. And um, I've always believed that, too. Maybe I haven't always believed that, but I've certainly learned or come to believe that uh, over a number of years. So uh, anyway, keep that in mind. And uh, if you're interested in this stuff, uh, go uh, uh, sleuthing around on the web and uh, use some keywords like mercury and India and flying machine and see what you find okay uh, maybe that's something that Kent and I will talk about uh, later actually because uh, uh, there, there's actually a number of stories coming out of India that are just astounding right now you know the Indian the, the Indian culture is different than the Western culture here they don't have uh, quite as much difficulty talking about strange things the whole the whole culture of India if you've ever been there is like this this soupy cacophony of just uh, Madness and 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 a kaleidoscope of, uh, I mean, it's a psychedelic in an, a, a psychedelic experience in and of itself. Just being there, uh, so the Indian culture is much different than ours, and much different than many other cultures around this planet. And they're very uh, comfortable talking about things that other people might consider way out there on the fringe. And so we'll be talking a, a little bit about that later. There's some stuff going on in India that is just out, uh, outrageous right now. So. Anyway, more about that when, uh, when Kent and I get on the air here in about a half an hour or so. Uh, there's another story that I want to mention, though, before we go to one more break. We'll take a break before I get Kent on the air, but let me read this one more story to you here. Um, this uh, is from uh, the Moscow Times, if I remember correctly. I forget exactly the source, uh, but anyway, it has to do with a, uh, a Russian DNA discovery that was uh, recently released by a couple of scientists there in, uh, in Russia. And the title of this article says, Russian DNA discoveries explain paranormal events. This was written on uh, January 17th. And I won't read the whole article, but I'll read enough of it for you to get an idea here, okay? So check this out. Esoteric and spiritual teachers have known for ages that our body is programmed by language, words, and thought. This has now been scientifically proven and explained. The human DNA is a biological internet and superior in many aspects to the artificial one. 
The latest Russian scientific research directly or indirectly explains phenomenon such as clairvoyance, intuition, spontaneous and remote acts of, remote acts of healing, self-healing, affirmation techniques, unusual light auras around people, uh, mind's influence on weather patterns, things like this. In addition, there is ev evidence for a whole new type of medicine in which DNA can be influenced and reprogrammed by words and frequencies without cutting, without cutting out or replacing single genes. I'm going to repeat that. In addition, there is evidence for a whole new type of medicine in which DNA can be influenced and reprogrammed by words and frequencies without cutting out and replacing single genes. Only 10% of our DNA is being used for building proteins. In this subset of DNA that is of interest to Western researchers and is being examined and categorized, the other 90% is considered just junk DNA. The Russian researchers, however, are convinced that nature was not dumb and they joined linguists and geneticists in a venture to explore the 90% of junk DNA that the Western scientists are not looking at. The results, findings, and conclusions are simply revolutionary. According to their findings, our DNA is not responsible for the construction of our body, but also serves as data storage and communication. The Russian linguists found that the genetic code, especially in the apparent useless 90%, follows the same rules as human language. To this end, they compared the rules of syntax, semantics, and basic rules of grammar. They found that the alkalines of our DNA follow a regular grammar and do have a set of rules, just like our languages. Therefore, human language did not appear coincidentally, but as a reflection of our inherent DNA. The Russian biophysicist and molecular bio biologist Pajator Garachev and his colleagues also explored the vibrational behavior of DNA. In brief, the bottom line was, quote, living chromosomes function just like a holographic computer using endogenous DNA and laser radiation. This means that they manage, for example, to modulate certain frequency patterns onto a laser-like ray which influenced DNA frequency and thus genetic information itself. Since the basic structure of DNA alkaline pairs and of language is of the same structure, no DNA decoding is necessary. One can simply use words and sentences of the human language. This too was experimentally proven. Now, that goes on uh, a little bit further uh, in a little bit more detail. And I must say that I've tried to get the original paper. I want to see the data. Uh, I'd like to see the data because when I hear stuff like that, um, Obviously, the data has to be there to back that up. So I'm trying to find it. I'm trying to get the original paper. But uh, um, it does strike me as true. Uh, there are lots of reasons, but one of the many that comes to mind is in the beginning was the Word. And that's a profound statement taken in the context of the story that I just read. So think about that a little bit. Think about language, about what language really means. I could talk, we could do a whole show on language, and in fact we should, uh, because language is as close to a miracle as has ever happened to this species. And 
it is, if you're looking for the fingerprint of God, if you're looking for the fingerprint of, of intelligence, well, language in the human species is, uh, uh, is, a, is a very good candidate for that. So keep that in mind. All right, uh, we'll be back in about uh, just a few minutes with Kent Stedman, and we'll do space weather. And I have a couple more stories that uh, we'll talk about with Kent on the air. And in the meantime, this is back from Mellow Gold. This is called Beer Can. Somebody put a flame on this. Oh, 
microphone uh, cord from stuck from underneath my chair. That was back from Mellow Gold. That was called Beer Can. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. All right, uh, let's see. Uh, we're going to have Kent uh, coming to us in just a few minutes here. He's actually on the air, and he'll be listening in for a few minutes, and I'm sure he'll have some things to add uh, uh, to the next couple of things that we're going to talk about. We'll do space weather right after this story, but um, this is something, as I said before, uh, India uh, is sort of a psychedelic place in and of itself, and they're, um, they're not too afraid to talk about... Uh, things that might be out there on the fringe a little bit uh, more freely than we might be here in the West. So this is something that came from the India Times, uh, or the India Daily, I think it actually was, uh, regardless, one of the largest newspapers in India. And uh, uh, this is like the headlines of the editorial page. It says, in every country of the world, all of a sudden, the weather forecasting computer models are failing. Human or extraterrestrial hand in weather manipulation? Question mark. So, just from the title alone, you can tell that they're willing to uh, um, willing to address some things uh, that we probably wouldn't address, at least not in such an open manner. So, let me read this uh, to you real fast, and uh, it's something maybe Kent and I can chat about a little bit. Lots of different stuff going on in India right now, including the. Uh, uh, the open discussion of alien intervention and uh, extraterrestrial contact. So uh, literally all kinds of nuts uh, and crazy stuff going on there. So anyway, listen to this. Over the past years, China has installed 74 sets of the world's advanced Doppler weather radar with 87% put into operation. But in the last year, all of a sudden, the weather forecasting computer models have failed so badly that China has decided to install 30 more of the devices rapidly this year, with a satellite launch later this year expected to start its own operation. This is the same story echoed in every part of the world, India to America. Weather forecasting models are just failing, and the variation patterns are so obvious that forecasters all over the world are scratching their heads. Uh, now, you might remember Scott Stevens, uh, who was on this program in December and in January, and he'll be on again. And um, maybe you're not thinking he's, uh, he's so crazy now. Huh? Anyway, uh, in, Russian, uh, uh, in Russia, authorities are just perplexed with bizarre patterns of snowfall. In America, the weather forecasters are similarly, similarly perplexed in their inability to tell people what will happen the next day. The recent hurricanes and typhoons all over the world have taken irregular patterns and unpredictable paths defying all established computer models. In India, China, Africa, Europe, all over the world, the same story is repeating. In every country, the meteorologists are thinking that these anomalies are just present in their region, but it is global and it is increasing every day. The intensity of the storms and the paths all over the world, especially in America's Florida and in the southeast, including the Gulf of Mexico, are just bizarre. Bureau of Meteorology Australian government is also perplexed with what is going on. Another interesting phenomenon that is becoming very obvious is that many of the storms all over the world last year went into merry-go-round patterns and pick up speed and force before landfall. There's a possibility that massive weather manipulation experimentation is taking place, which are totally classified. Military research projects involving weather manipulation is nothing new. Many countries are racing towards achieving these capabilities. 
What is perplexing is that the same unusual patterns are also present in the Arctic and Antarctic regions. British Antarctic Survey, the BAS, and the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, the SCAR, the World Meteorological Organization, the International Commission on Polar Meteorology, and the Council of Managers of National Antarctic Programs are all involved in modeling the polar weather patterns. This massive scale of the same problem gives rise to the fact that there may be some bigger hand involved. In South America and Central America, Native Indians believe that their gods using used to control the weather on a daily basis. We may be looking at the same pattern where someone is controlling the, wor the worldwide weather. So, there you have it. I didn't write it, I just read it, okay? That comes from one of the largest newspapers in India. And they're openly talking about the stuff that we've been talking about on this program for quite a while. <clears throat> and we've had uh, our own meteorologist, Scott Stevens, a weatherman out in Pocatello, Idaho, uh, the, the anchor there, the, t the television anchor, um, who talks about exactly the same thing. And uh, he's willing to stand up and say it in public and back it up with his own research, obviously. Uh, you know, it's his career. So you don't just step out uh, being the television anchor and start shooting your mouth off about weather control and weather mani manipulation and weather modification if you can't back it up. Um, and he's still on the air, okay? So the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. And so amazing stuff happening. So as I always say, don't discount this stuff. Don't discount this stuff just because you think that it might <clears throat> sound... Well, beyond the scope of what you thought was reality. Well, that doesn't matter. Reality has moved beyond what most people think is real. And uh, it's changing so fast that unless you're following everything very closely, there's no way that you can really know what's going on and have a, uh, a perfect understanding of all these different new ideas and new technologies and new information. So your only hope is to have an open mind or to bury your head in the sand those are the only two options uh, floating in that middle ground is no fun it's just a a wasteland of of, of um, confusion you know so stick your head in the sand if you will but if you'd like the other alternative open your mind and uh, consider some of this stuff Go out, get a book, read about it, get on the web, find out for yourself. Okay? Real interesting stuff going on. All right. Speaking of interesting stuff, let's do space weather here real fast. And, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, there was a big, giant sunspot area called 720, and it is about to return. If, uh, if the models, you know, we always talk about these models. If the models are correct, um, it's going to be sneaking over the limb right about now. <clears throat> and uh, I tell you, it was a whopper two weeks ago when it was out there, and it was launching X-class flares. We know we had three X-class flares within four or five days that all came from that particular region. Um, it's uh, we're we're approaching that window again. The uh, same area will be right on the front side of the disk for the next five or six days, and uh, we expect that the activity that we see from the sun should uh, should increase during that time. You know. Um, there was actually an X7 class flare that was uh, uh, unleashed back on January 20th, and 
if we see more activity like that, uh, well, it's, um, like I say, it's a cosmic crapshoot, so to speak. Most of the time, sunspots, uh, sunspots decay and dissipate over a few weeks' time, but uh, 720 still exists. We know that because they have some pretty cool imagery now that we can look at the backside of the sun. Uh, they call it heliospheric holography, actually. And uh, anyway, uh, 720 is still there, and there's also this other uh, even larger region that looks like it's formed in the same vicinity and, and uh, it hasn't even been named yet but uh, anyway it looks like there are a couple of monsters that are just rolling around the eastern limb of the sun so we'll, uh, we'll talk to Kent about that in just a minute here um, and uh, one other thing if you're interested in comet Matchholz we talked about it a couple weeks ago there's sort of a green comet that's a, a naked eye comet although it's getting a little fuzzy right now for the naked eye. If you've got a pair of binoculars or a small telescope, it'll actually look great right, uh, right about now. But um, just after sunset, if you go out and look toward the north, you'll find uh, Comet Matchholz. It's sort of a greenish-looking, fuzzy, uh, faint star. Um, but it'll be near the constellation of Cassiopeia. Uh, Cassiopeia looks like a W. It's sort of a W-shaped constellation. And if you... Uh, if you look there, um, you should be able to check out Comet Matchholz as it cruises out of the solar system, okay? Um, potentially hazardous asteroids. Um, well, something happened in the news this last week about a particular stone that's called uh, uh, MN4 2004, 2004 MN4 actually, that's going to get really close to the Earth, but not until um, April of 2029, supposedly. And uh, at that time, it's supposed to be only 30,000 kilometers above the planet's surface. Now, that's nothing, you guys. That's 20,000 miles. That's uh, not very far. In cosmic terms, it is really just a hair. And uh, even though it's, uh, it's funny that they, they talk... I, I always laugh when I hear these stories, though, because <clears throat> it's, uh, they make a big deal about this rock that's going to blaze by us. 23 years from now or 26 years from now or whatever it is and uh, yet we may get a story in the news tomorrow that says on Friday an asteroid had a close encounter with the earth and blizz by and blah 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 and that's the key with these things is that there's no way of knowing what's really out there and uh, the ones that we catalog are the ones that you can forget about uh, so I wouldn't worry about this one uh, from 2029. I wouldn't worry about any of them, quite frankly. What I would do is recognize that the universe is a dynamic creature and that sudden perturbations and sudden unexpected events can make sharp turns and uh, bring about new situations and new equilibriums that were previously unexpected so keep that in mind when you're thinking about this stuff and uh, don't look at it with fear just look at it with an understanding that anything can happen at any time all right back in a minute with Kent Stedman this is fuel sunburn KOPN radio orbit <laughs>
are listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. Welcome back to uh, Radio Orbit, KOPN 89.5 FM. This is Mike Hagan. I'm your host. It's 3 a.m. on uh, Sunday morning, the 6th of February. My guest tonight is our favorite and frequent guest, Kent Stedman from www.cyberspaceorbit.com. Kent uh, is a regular guest on the program and someone who we're real fortunate to be able to spend some time talking to and uh, uh, let's bring him right on here. He'll probably have some interesting things to comment on these last couple stories. Kent, do we have you here? Yeah, I'm here. Hello, everybody. Hello, Mike. Huh, how are you, man? Yeah, I'm here and, uh, and boy, I'll tell you, it's a sci-fi world and uh, a lot of uh, things happening in many different layers that are blowing my mind. And my job is, uh, essentially is to just kind of watch things and see what's going on. Hey, Kent, let's do and that. Post it up on my website and share it with other people, and then let the series all uh, happen. Well, I'll tell you what. Let Let's do that real fast. We for for a while you've been on the show a number of times, but uh, uh, it's been a while since we actually told people what you're about and all that. So why don't we just do a quick little background framework on what Cyberspace Orbit is about and um, uh, what, what, uh, what, how you and me got involved in all this stuff? So, you know, cyberspace orbit started with myself, uh, who has a background in humanities, publishing a children's story <laughs> on the internet, uh, and that time story that uh, represents some of the things communicated between myself and my children when they were young. And it went from there, but mainly for me, it's a very, very personal quest, you know, based on what I think is a belly full of strangeness in my life. Right. And uh, in my perceptions, I think it's because I'm an artist and a musician. You know, you kind of uh, develop in a, in, in a certain way and become perceptually sensitive to the things that are slightly uh, away from the normal way of, of seeing things in our culture anyway. Right. But, cult, but cultures are a really strange thing. You know, you're talking about India. I heard that segment. Right. Uh, who's to say who's got the best grip on um, handling what's going down pipeline here or reality? Because here we have this ancient civilization that's been uh, philosophically dealing with the, the, the cosmos for so long and, uh, and they have a more I 
believe, a more expanded way of looking at things. And so who's to say which is the more peculiar culture? Right. The East or the West? You know, we're a very young culture, and uh, uh, going through our sort of military uh, uh, merchant military sort of teeny bopper adolescence. <laughs> right. And... Uh, and but if you to find a real deep history of philosophical regard for the, the universe, I think sometimes it's okay to go to the ancient cultures and see what's going on. And I'm telling you, there you mentioned the India Times, right? There's story after story after story headlining from the India Times about uh, extra terrestrial interface with the human race and to the point where we have some of our uh, own political leaders here, senators and so on, going to India to see what's going on. Right, right. right. They're linking it with the weather, the, the, the perhaps the tsunami, which the, the, which has happened and is still happening. In yeah. Indonesia, the, the earth is still shaking and it's not quitting. It's got all the seismologists uh, trying to find a new model for the whole thing and uh, they, they're talking about a crash in Tibet you know of an ET spacecraft uh, that's guarded uh, with some sort of force filled by the ET themselves and on and on and on you know something's going on over there and, uh, they're springing it on the world I guess to see how uh, we in the West can handle it well it's interesting you mentioned culture because I've come to think of culture as sort of like an operating system, you know, and right now we're running post-industrial capitalist 2.0 or whatever, and, uh, you know, over there they're running a different operating, uh, operating system. They're running a different operating system in the equatorial rainforest in New Guinea, you know, um, but that's all these things are is they're, they're just these these overlays on top of the biological body on top of the being itself and you know it it i always think about it like bill gates and you know the, the job of culture is to convince you that their operating system is the best <laughs> and, and that's the one that's the one that you should use you know and uh uh, certainly, I think we're seeing that uh, uh, across the board, and and the question is, uh, which one of these operating systems are uh, are really viable, you know, and which ones will really carry the system further, or which ones are going to crash it, you know? Well, time proves that, you know, and uh, what a culture is, or a nation, you might say, or any territorial. Uh, domain is it's really a shit. It's all about a myth that's being mm. shared by a lot of people. Right. So, you know, if if people no longer believe in the myth, then the culture will mutate, change, sometimes go away entirely. And uh, I think we need to nowadays to have a kind of a world view we have to I mean the internet connects us with everybody across the world right it's just amazing but anyway uh, the big story right now is like you said is this region uh, 720 which is uh, if you go to cyberspaceorbit.com you, you'll see the, the 
visuals, and I'm really concerned myself with presenting, uh, say, one picture's worth a thousand words, presenting right. the visual aspect of, of some of these cosmic influences. And uh, right now you can see on the eastern limb of the sun on cyberspaceorbit.com these immense protuberances. My God, I'm looking right now, Kent. These fingers shooting out of the sun. Uh, uh, it must be of some concern to the people that are running the show as far as the Soho uh, spacecraft and so on because they cut the feet as usual. <laughs> right, right. About eight hours ago, and so we're not really getting a serious update because that 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 new sunspot should be breaking around here to where we can see it pretty soon. Well, so what we do have the opportunity to see is the silhouette, you know, of the uh, spot as it uh, uh, sort of faces due east and is uh, coughing up these immense uh, CMEs. And if you scroll down a little bit, you can see how it looked on another camera, which shows the corona, a really an impressive uh, uh, coronal mass ejection on what is called the C2 camera. See, the Soho spacecraft has several uh, camera arrays on it. Uh, you have the LASCO on the Soho, mm -hmm. and then SWAN, which is sort of a pan-out view of the universe. But this is a, a, an incredible event. It makes me kind of edgy, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, that coronal hole is huge. I mean, it's covering... 25% of the visible area of the sun and uh, um, I'm also looking at that uh, yeah it, it, you know the holographic uh, image of the backside Kent yeah there, you know it shows 720 that was the one of so much concern a couple weeks ago but it also shows this other large grouping of something that's new and in fact it's funny I uh, on your website and on mine uh, and, and just to reiterate, www.cyberspaceorbit.com, uh, you can get uh, uh, to see this stuff. You can also go to my site at uh, radioorbit.com. But anyway, um, there's a question mark <laughs> uh, and, and, a, and a little arrow that, uh, that they have pointed toward it. And uh, we didn't put that question mark there, you guys. That, that came from the from the officials <laughs> so uh, so anyway I don't know what that is because that thing looks like it's three or four times as big as uh, 720 was since then too if you'll notice on slightly left that the question mark is another frame right a detail of a frame uh, the sun spot itself on the backside mind you is uh, has become a rather interesting diamond shaped uh, icon Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've never quite seen that before, but you know this sunspot 720, going back to uh, January 20th, had an interesting shape. It looked uh, <laughs> almost precisely like the ancient Egyptian Eye of Horus right, or the right. Eye of Ra. Right, right. Had the little uh, uh, spiral loop on the tail, and yeah, yeah. And for a, a, a creative madman like myself, you know, that's the, the <laughs> symbolism really struck me in the heart of the, the eye of Ra as it moved across the face of the sun in January. 
But now here's the deal. <laughs> we have to go back a few days before the X7 flare blew on the on uh, January 20th, 05. Okay. And if we go back a little bit further, what was picked up by the Swift spacecraft was an incredible uh, gamma burst, gamma ray burst, you know, that lasted like 100 seconds and uh, caused the spacecraft to slew over to, to observe it. It's a really bright spot. Right. And it's significant. Now, uh, we, I've tried to ask uh, people that are really into this uh, uh superwave theory and so on, how significant that was, and maybe it isn't that potent of a force, but uh, in the fact that it came more from the equatorial region of the galaxy in the constellation Cygnus, the swan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it was a long burning gamma ray burst, and, and these these suckers, you know, they, they sort of max out the Einstein equation, the relationship between the energy and matter. Right. And the fact that if you, you convert it from one side of the equation to the other, you know, you're talking about enough energy to account for a lot of matter that we're able to see with our uh, amplified <laughs> vision through telescopes and so on. And so you, some people call it the genesis. Now, that happened on my birthday on the 17th, slightly before the sunspot began to bloom. Now, see, that sun, sunspot 720 was a tiny little speck. Right, right. Which blossomed, you know, within a 24-hour period to a big, uh, significant field of force. And, uh, and it happened, you know... Uh, almost immediately after that gamma ray burst went off. And then if you look at some of the other monitors, like the uh, cosmic ray monitors uh, around the world or in Moscow and, and Antarctica and so on, uh, on my watch I, I saw an unprecedented uh, spike on the, uh, 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 the neutrino count, the number of neutrinos reaching it. So you have the sequence that goes like this, the gamma ray burst, the the, the spike on the uh, cosmic ray indicator, and then suddenly this blooming of this in, on the sun of this uh, from a rather insignificant sunspot region to a really powerful sunspot okay, region huh? shaped like the eye of the forest, you know, was blasted this with an X7 uh, flare, a corresponding CME that maxed out all the monitors on Earth, and you, perhaps even more significant, significantly, a, a really powerful proton storm, which uh, uh, has a certain type of subtlety to it, but in a way, these protons are uh, little critters. They come into our magnesium, the upper layers of our atmosphere, and they accumulate. And over this period of... Uh, uh, solar cycle 23 and beyond, you know, they've accumulated to become quite a, uh, a radiant uh, band around the Earth, you know. A lot of radiation. Incredible. So you go from gamma ray bursts to cosmic ray bursts to, to uh, the, the formation of sunspot 720 and then watching it go across the backside of the sun and not diminishing at all but becoming three or four times larger right. mutating into a 
a diamond-shaped region, and now we're seeing these uh, approach these big arms of uh, uh, coronal material blowing out the eastern edge of the sun, and then uh, at the source of the feed, they've kind of cut it off. And right, then NASA Maybe cuts the feed. Yeah, I think I think it's freaky. Hey, the truth. It's freaky, and I think what these things can do if they uh, hit a bullseye target on they can knock out our satellites, they expand the atmosphere, uh, causing a lot more drag on the inner satellites, including the International Space Station. You know, uh, they've been been known to cause uh, uh, power blackouts. Sure, remember just. Uh uh, just a few months ago, that was actually, and it was right dur- right after a time when we had some more of this uh, super intense uh, solar activity. Remember, there was a story where the ISS uh, had actually dropped some eight miles in altitude or something, and there was a, there was actually a special mission, actually two special missions that were launched uh, from Russia to go and boost the International Space Station back up into its orbit uh, because the, or- the orbit was degrading and it was exactly for that reason because the drag was increasing because of solar activity. Well, when the sun hits us like this, with those, uh, you think of the Earth as kind of like a little BB and these uh, storms these coming off these sunspots or these vast fields of energy uh, Sweeping whatever's in the way, and if Earth's in the way, you know it'll it'll actually take our, our atmospheric layers, our magnetosphere, and it'll, it'll uh, Earth will start looking like a big Nerf ball with the magnetosphere uh, collapsing and expanding and collapsing and expanding, and sort of a sponge effect, you know. Mm-hmm. And but overall, the energy involved will uh, ultimately expand magnetosphere and the dust create what's called the atmospheric drag on our satellites. So it's a threat to our satellites. And the, the way it's looking now, I had this really edgy feeling to the point where you know I could be wrong but I I tell people to pay attention to their electronics right. <laughs> their cell phones and their television and their radio signals and then probably their bank accounts. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's uh, a significant. I mean, uh, we've had some major flare activity, no question about it, in the last few years, and it's been. Uh, it hasn't. Uh, it hasn't let up. It's you know we've we've been through what should have been solar minimum. Solar minimum really never came. Um, we should be about in the middle of that cycle right now, and uh, that just—it seems that that, that those um, particular patterns that we've been following uh, for quite some time, at least in the short term here, are are no longer valid. Um, Where the the uh, the activity just—it's uh, uh, just crazy to watch it happen. I mean, and, and uh, it's amazing how predictable it is to watch what happens with the feeds. And uh, uh, it's just uh, it's just something else. And Kent, you make a great point about the um, the effects on Earth. You know, we really don't know. It hasn't happened to the. Uh, we, we've been lucky, I guess, so far. It's sort of like a crapshoot. But um, 
you know, we have this technology now where in the old days, uh, you know, there may have been a giant flare and it may have done what it did, but we now have the technology that's dependent upon uh, transistors and electronic circuitry and all this stuff, and, and potentially uh, all that stuff is at risk. Well, you know, you go up to the ATM machine and it won't work. <laughs> that type of thing. My wife, just uh, her uh, cell phone service isn't working right. And she just called them about an hour and a half ago, and they said, well, we don't know what's wrong, but our computers are messed up. So maybe that's a, a, a little hint, a whisper of a hint. Hmm. Well, we'll have to see because... We, we, we know now that these things are, 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 are connected. There's no question about it. Uh, science tells us that. Uh, mysticism told us that a long time ago. But, um, you know, the uh, talking about gamma ray bursts and cosmic ray uh, impacts and these sorts of things, you know, there was an interesting little uh, dialogue that was going on on your website a couple of weeks ago uh, right around the time when we, um, we aired that uh, Paul LaViolette uh, interview about uh, the significance of these gamma ray bursts and um, and how uh, significantly they affect the earth and what the uh, what the variables are and all that stuff and and although there was some uh, disagreement as to the level of uh, of interaction that takes place and the level of connectivity depending on uh, on how uh, how powerful the event is um, there was certainly agreement that these things are uh, having an effect. Well, this recent event, it makes me feel like or sense or whatever, and I try to use both uh, my right and left brain <laughs> on all this. But, it, 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 you know, we still live in uh, terms of our senses and what we think is a 3D world, but and so we talk about a line shot from the center of the galaxy or a line shot from the sun through uh, sort of uh, the space-time we're familiar with. But when I see these things happen, when I saw the gamma ray burst followed by the neutron burst followed by the sun, it's almost like this big voice resounds outside of space and time. Hmm. Instead of going uh, a domino effect, it's almost like somebody plugged in a big Christmas tree and it all goes on at once. Right. Like the voice of Zeus, you know, speaking through space. It's Outside of our uh, uh, our sort of hamburger land. Well, you mentioned that it was as if somebody spoke, and that's a. Uh, you didn't hear it. You weren't on the air when I read the story, but, of course, you and me tend to be on the same page a lot of the time with this stuff. But there was a Russian uh, um, a paper that was released this week in Russia that had to do with some DNA uh, discoveries that they found uh, that were able, supposedly, to explain so-called paranormal events. But uh, um, the significant part of the research was that these particular scientists had said that DNA could be affected by words, by language, and that DNA is bound by rules of syntax and grammar uh, just as human language is. And that, to me, really, really rings. It really rings. And, uh, you know, I think of, I mentioned it before, but I think of the beginning words of 
one of the ancient texts that says in the beginning was the word and that has to have some sort of significance speaking in the ancient world that uh, we got a forthcoming event you know that in a way uh, I stumbled upon by looking at uh, the ancient mounds remember those in the Boyne Valley sure in Ireland they're in their, in their inner relationship in this big spiral that's like the Nautilus shell Right, right, and, right. Uh, and then and then sort of sinking into the mythology, the ancient Celtic mythology, the cup and the sword and the lady of the lake. Uh, the center of the spiral is a lake called Ballybor Lake. And, uh, and again, anyway, Ken, to, to, my... to refresh, this is in the Boyne Valley, correct, in Ireland? Yeah. Yes, yes, in Ireland. Okay. And then there you have these huge... Uh, um, uh, mounds, you know, stupendous mounds, uh, Douth and Mouth and uh, Newgrange and the Hill of Terra. And uh, uh, a while back, I contacted some of the people that are over there and said, hey, look, uh, the arrangement of these mounds, which is over a rather vast area, uh, seems to fit within not only the, the uh, uh, reflection on Earth of the Pleiadians, Pleiadian system, but also they spiral to the center like a like the like the spiral uh, discovered within the golden ratio. Right. Golden right. Right. And at the center of that spiral is a lake, and so they were, were kind enough to go sloshing around over in that lake and see what's over there. Lakes have a very mystical uh, bearing on his. his in the ancient Celtic and many of the ancient sort of shamanistic traditions. Well, anyway, from that uh, discovery, the, and I began to hear a lot about the, the Grail type legends, and I think about the Grail type legends and the sword legends, and the, so I just for the heck of it ran the star system on my on my uh, star chart, right. which allows you to push things backwards and forwards in time. And it looks like on February 24th, there's a planetary alignment coming up with Mercury, Uranus, Venus, and Neptune all lined up in sort of a sword-like arrangement under the constellation of Aquarius. Hmm. So I'm wondering, just from the poetic right. <laughs> standpoint, if what we're seeing is is, is a, a, the cup and sword Templar sort of uh, grail thing as, uh, as expressed in the cosmos or in the heavens and it's coming up soon and I think when the planets line up like this that uh, they harmonically influence one another and maybe set up a kind of a force field that corresponds to mm -hmm. something at least emotionally or intuitively within mm -hmm. us right. but that's coming up on the 20, February 24th and, uh, and the sun is sure uh, making its bid and uh, uh, a lot of lot of things are corresponding right now to really keep me glued to my <laughs> computer monitor to see what's going on, along with many other things. Oh, it's it it's been absolutely outrageous. I I uh, before I came in here to do the show earlier tonight, I'm sitting at my computer well all, all week, you know, and I, I try to collect stories and ideas and things for the show and. 
I, I've been it's been really frustrating actually because there's so much going on and there's so many things that I want to talk about, but I only have time to talk about you know this this and this and trying to decide which three stories I'm going to talk about in the first hour is like uh, it's it's actually something that I'm using now as a gauge you know uh, I, I sort of use it as a gauge now uh, to 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 define the level of novelty <laughs> sort of you know uh, the difficulty I have in choosing stories the harder it is the more I know is going on and right now it's been so hard to figure out what to talk about because there's just too much going on that's sort of like trying to forecast the weather, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. We got yeah. the same problem as Scott does in, in philosophically, because there's so much going on. For instance, uh, you know, just watching the, re if, you know, if you just want to specialize and watch the sun. Now I try to do more than that. I try to. For me, it's important to get a general picture. Mm -hmm. So I'll look mm -hmm. at the. Both what's going on in the heavens and the earth, see how all us uh, folks are jumping around down here. Yeah. How we're being activated culturally and individually. And uh, <clears throat> last uh, week, about um, a few days ago, let me see, I'll take a closer look at it. We saw this thing around and on the last of. C3 through the Alaska C3. Oh, oh, I know what you're going to talk about. I tell you what, that's that, that's that's a good little little cliffhanger. I think uh, let's take a break here. We're at the bottom of the hour, okay? Let's do yeah. that, and we'll come back and and uh, hold that thought, and ex and uh, and and we'll do an explanation of that of that uh, that image that you're going to talk about in a second here, okay? Mm -hmm. All right, good. Um, this is uh, Radio Orbit. You're listening to it here on KOPN. My name is Mike Hagan. My guest is Kent Stedman from www cyberspaceorbit.com Kent is a regular guest on the program and someone who we love to talk to and we're talking about the sun right now and we're talking about lots of other things as well stick around we'll be back in just a few minutes in the meantime this is Genesis and the song is called Behind the Lines check it out we'll be back in a few minutes with Kent Stedman on Radio Orbit
Genesis, Behind the Lines. That's from their CD, Duke, from, uh, I don't know when, but it was a long time ago. So, anyway, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit. My guest is Kent Stedman from www.cyberspaceorbit.com. Kent and I have uh, been chatting about a few things already, but primarily talking about the sun. And, uh, Kent, right at the end of the, uh, at, uh, at the end of the last segment there you were about to bring up a particular image that was uh that was taken on um february 2nd i guess it was and i don't know who i don't know who scared that up uh, and and sent it to you i don't know if you found it yourself but it's an incredible image from what is that c2 or c1 c3 or c3 uh, that's right i'm sorry uh so it's from c3 the soho c3 camera um but anyway why don't you uh be in the artist that you are, why don't you try to give a description of this to the people who can't uh, who can't look at the image like I am right now? Well, there's so much wild stuff going on in my head, it's just spinning, so I'm going to try to focus here and describe this to you. The Lasto C3 camera uh, has a, is actually a view of the sun where the, the actual face of the sun is baffled out. They have a, a baffle, a disc-shaped baffle over the face of the sun. And then through the X-ray spectrum, we're allowed to look at the uh, wondrous halo or corona or aura or whatever you want to call it around the sun. And uh, uh, and this is sort of a pan-out view where the actual field that we're looking at is uh, 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 looks like the sun is about the size of a dime and, and <laughs> within a... Uh, a page size uh, a format, but and so you get to see these wispy arms of energy as the uh, as the various forces on the sun emit. And uh, what happened is on the second of this month, an artifact or something came through the through the field of view that looks like a big double S shape sweeping from the lower west right hand corner through the through the uh, image through the frame making a sort of a double S turn and then swooping off <laughs> the top of it in other words I'm seeing something that they didn't prepare me for in, in, in my college astronomy class yeah well they didn't prepare me for it either and you know my my first impression was it looked like a like a like the Enterprise had just taken off and it was leaving this ion trail or you know a cosmic vapor trail or something because it looks like that's why I, that's why I chose uh, the word soul trail for the show tonight because it looks like there's just it looks like something blazed by the sun is what it looks like it looks like it was making a fast getaway or something. Yeah, and uh, the thing is, we want to invite all the listeners back on uh, early next week, probably Monday, where the, the show goes to the Internet, and then you can uh, take what we're trying to describe here over the airwaves and, and compare it to the images, which I'll leave up on my main page. Okay, good. So you'll be able to see what we're talking about. Now, there was a... Uh, the only time I've seen anything even close to that Kent was um, a couple years ago when it was right around the time when Comet V1 was blazing by 
and that was that, that was a that was a psychedelic experience in and of itself. But remember, there was that other weird thing. It looked like a little horn of plenty or something, uh, but it had sort of a similar look to it. Does that ring a bell with you? Yeah, if you go down to the bottom of my page and put oh, go you got it down to the next. Okay. If you go up to the next page, you'll see them in comparison. Interestingly enough, that in a sort of wry way, that both of these events seem to take place in terms of comets. Mm. And back then, it was really spectacular and very obvious comet, comet B1, which we got to see in full splendor on the as it uh, came out from the orc cloud and then propelled itself towards. Uh, earth, earth towards the sun, and we were able to see it on the Soho cameras. It's really amazing. That was amazing, actually. But now this is—we've got a subtle problem here. It's a question, actually. It's not really a clearly defined uh, uh, concept yet, because I got an email from from a. Person that watches what's called the Swan camera through the Swan camera, which is a really zoom out and allows us, allows us to see from the Soho spacecraft, which is about a million miles out away from Earth, you know, over around the Earth. Actually, we get to see all the comets within the vicinity that are moving and circulating around the Sun. Well, we saw an object uh, moving southward away from the sun, sort of southwest, and it looked like a cometary object, but, you know, these things are supposed to come in from the Oort cloud, make a zip around the sun, and then go back to the Oort cloud. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What happened here, and we don't know what to make of it, and we're still watching it, is this thing took a loop and went, started heading right back toward the sun, like a tight uh, U-turn, <laughs> headed back toward the sun, and then... Uh, uh, three or four days ago, suddenly the whole region that was passing through, kind of, they kind of blacked it out or it blacked out, and the darn thing vanished <laughs> off the monitors. And so you've got a very definite cometary light moving south of the sun. Instead of going back to deep space where it should go, it did a U-turn, headed back toward the sun. And then, then we had a, the sequence goes like this, the comet moving south, the comet making a U-turn back toward the sun, a blackout on the swan instrumentation. In fact, they pulled the swan images several times over for several periods of several days. It moves back toward the sun, and then a blackout thing happens on the imagery, and then it's gone. Hmm. <laughs> and then a day later, we see this big swooping... <laughs> Right. It looks like, like Mike said, it looks like a, a contrail of a jet going by. But, you know, the, the explosion, the frame is just a few seconds, you know. And so, and it travels many solar uh, widths from the south to many solar widths from the north. So whatever's going on, if it's moving in some kind of linear fashion, you know, it's Booking it toward the speed of light <laughs> is what I'd have to say. Right, right. Yeah, and, uh, a, that's an astounding image. It's unexplainable. We see a lot of things that are unexplainable. Well, you know, if uh, 
you know, when I was talking to Paul Laviolette, he he really hit on some of this stuff, and and the reason that that science is in such a predicament right now is because they are constantly astounded by new data and new information that just doesn't jive, and they're they're just continuously agonized <laughs> by all of all, you know, all of these things, and so. Um, you and me can sit here and chat, chat about them uh, because we haven't, um, you know, we're not living in a paradigm that says that they can't exist. We just, we just take it for what it is and try to, uh, uh, you know, try to reconcile it. But uh, for uh, the theoreticians and these guys that, ha- that, are, that are deeply tied in to these old ideas, well, as, you know, I, like we mentioned the other night when you and I were chatting, is that, you know, there was a time when, uh, when science and reality had a pretty good overlay where they fit pretty well, but uh, it just seems that reality has moved on and that, that that fit is no longer there. I mean, science, gosh, if you look at physics, I mean, they're, they're to the left of psychology now as far as the accuracy of their <laughs> predictions, you know? So, so well, I don't... Anyway, uh, but uh, there's just... Astrophysics, and in fact, physics has to move toward the mind itself in order to to get a total picture of all this. We just have to. We have to, we have to incorporate the, 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 the perceiver somewhere in all this. Right. That which is doing the, the watching and the looking. Right, right, right. And we, by looking, we've seen a lot of strange things. I kind of made a list on this main page of weird things that we've seen. And some might say, well, it's a particle hitting the lens, or it's, a, it's just a, a malfunction of the spacecraft camera and so on. But the problem is, NASA's been watching it, too. Well, at least the last Solo team with the department and correspondence with the Department of Navy has been watching these events. And they've got quite a list of them, which I linked on my page. And they call it debris. So that uh, indicates perhaps that we're talking about things, not terrible events that are mm-hmm. real, rather than uh, somebody screwing up the uh, the, uh, the image itself. Right. You know? And these are real cameras, you know. They're real yeah, cameras it, with lenses that send back the information in digital, then it's reinterpreted on Earth. Yeah, you know, and it's you know, you and me look at these things pretty often, and and it's pretty obvious that 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 that. Both of those images, the one from 2003 and the most recent one, um, are pretty pretty uh, a typical images from C3, except for the fact that these quote-unquote artifacts are there. And so, to me, it looks like the image was fine. It doesn't look like there was a, a, a you know, as a layman looking at this, it doesn't look like there was a problem with the camera or anything. It's exactly the same shot that you got the frame before, uh, except... In this particular one, you've got, uh, you know, the Enterprise blazing by or whatever the hell it is. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the things we've seen over the past, I, I put a link and it's called Solar Rogues because there's things occurring around the sun that, like I say, uh, don't fit too well with the, my own background in uh, Keplerian Newtonian reality, you know. And we've seen, for instance, we've seen triangles flirting <laughs> the limb of the sun. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. we're able to capture them in animation and watch triangular shapes move back and forth, uh, sort of 
touching the edge of the sun and moving back. And, you know, sometimes in a cluster of two or three triangles. Now, what the heck is that? One time we saw um, a, an immense, like, pyramid, prismatic sort of event over a period of days track across the face of the sun. Like, imagine cutting out a cardboard uh, triangle out of a and then holding it up in front of your uh, studio light and, and just moving across the face of the light. That's what we saw. Right, moving right. across the face of the sun. And one day, uh, not too long ago, we we saw uh, the sun as it blew out its uh, uh, corona, blew out the various shapes from the corona. They formed cubes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Remember that? I do. I do. And... Uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, going back to, you know, the conversations we've had with Scott, um, I continue to see this as above, so below thing, you know, uh, the, and, and angles, 90 degree angles uh, and cubes and triangles and these things, um, for whatever reason, seem to be manifesting both down here. Uh, in things like atmospheric phenomenon, and, and I don't and I don't know the source. Maybe Scott's right. You know, uh, maybe it is uh, weather manipulation of the nefarious sort. You know, and there's a weather war going on, and, and scalar technologies are real and uh, and in play. Uh, regardless, uh, the um, the geometry is still there, regardless of the source. So I'm seeing these things happening in the skies above our own heads, and then I look to the skies way above our heads via uh, technology like SOHO and some of these other things that we're fortunate enough to be able to get a glimpse of, even though they cut the feed on us whenever anything get, you know, gets interesting. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the they don't teach right angles and, and uh, um, voluminous cubes coming out of the corona of the sun it's just not supposed to happen and 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 and, and these things are happening i can't explain them but i know they're real i know that that that, that my eyes uh um, are telling me what i'm looking at so well bucky fuller told us uh, that i one time believed that there are no straight lines in nature you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but that straight lines heck with straight lines we're seeing in the center of hurricanes we're seeing Pentagon. Right. I mean, absolutely. And we're right. seeing in our weather systems, we're seeing low and high pressures that are perfect squares. Right. And uh, and then, okay, well, you could say, well, that might be due to some sort of a sorcery that's going on in our uh, attempt to technologically control everything down here. But when you extend out into space, into the into our neighborhood star and beyond, and you begin to see geometry and things appearing and disappearing for instance well, right now Mercury if you look at the Soho spacecraft you see this little bright sort of winged light which the wings come from the CCD enhancement of the, of the planet itself but we've seen planetary reflecting look like reflective objects that look like planets disappear right I mean, immense structures just appear and then disappear, you know, within a frame. Right. And we, uh, and we call it Liz Edwards, who's a, who's a really 
observant, ordinary person. You know, I think a lot of the research that's going on right now is a result of just ordinary people thinking, wait a minute, what's this, you know? And she coined the term sun cruiser, and what sun cruisers are are planetary reflective bodies that reflect in the same way the planets do, suddenly appearing and disappearing on the uh, Soho spacecraft. Right. Uh, I mean, on the, the Soho uh, aperture. And then we've seen things like uh, immense winged things that look like something out of Sumerian myth, you know, the winged uh, uh, Marduk, you know, spreading his wings as appears dramatically next to the sun. Right, right. It's just a, a spot of light, but it begins to take shape, you know. Like a big moth or something spreading uh, spreading its wings. Yeah, and reminiscing you know? of the of the, uh, the Native American Thunderbird image as well. Yeah, we've seen that. We've seen all kinds of stuff. I know it's absolutely outrageous. So for a while back in the ninety late ninety ninety nine, we were seeing like uh, shafts of light that looked like a sword hanging near the sun. Yeah, and then, it, of course. The, the great, most spectacular event took place in this big slinky shot out of this, uh, about 7 o'clock position of the south pole of the sun and came all the way down. Looked like it, 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 it looked like it was expanding toward Earth. And I mean, you're talking about... Uh, imagine the... Uh, <laughs> imagine Star Trek and uh, the... Uh, the teleportation chamber, you know, the big series of rings, like a big slinky shooting out of the bottom of the sun, going off the frame to who knows where. Yeah, it has been something else. So anyway, okay, we're going to take another break, I think, here. We'll be back at the top of the hour. And, uh, oh, by the way, uh, happy birthday to you and to Wendy. I think today is actually Wendy's birthday, so... Uh, yeah, we celebrated together. Oh, all right, good. Yeah, no, and no. our family. What a great family! I'm <laughs> to say how much I love them over the years. Well, you are a because beyond everything that we look at here and speculate about, you know, it's our own little circle of family and tribe that really counts. Yep, no question about it. And uh, and I I concur fully. You've got a you got a wonderful little tribe uh, back there in Seattle. So uh, hi to Wendy and. Um, and uh, this one, uh, even though it doesn't particularly represent either one of you, it is from Seattle. So <laughs> check this out. This is Radio Orbit. You're listening to Mike Hagan. I've got Kent Stedman on the line from www.cyberspaceorbit.com. Get online and follow along with us. There's always real interesting imagery that Kent brings uh, to the program. And in the meantime, from Seattle, this is. Pearl Jam, Crazy Mary on Radio Orbit. Back in a minute. She lived on a curve in the road In an old tar paper shack On the south side of the town On the wrong side of the tracks Sometimes on the way into town We'd say, Mama, can we stop and give her a ride? Sometimes we did but her hands flew from her side While I'd crave 
you fear the most could meet you halfway. That what you fear the most could meet you halfway. Take the bottle, take it down, pass it around. Take the bottle, take it down, pass it down, pass it around.
Pearl Jam from uh, the uh, Victoria Williams benefit CD that was called Sweet Relief. Wonderful CD, lots of great stuff on that. And uh, uh, anyway, it's four o'clock. You're listening to KOPN 89.9, not 89.9, 89.5 FM. Mid Missouri Source in depth news, diverse talk music of the world. It's more than radio, it's community radio. It's also your imagination station, and we serve Columbia. Bell and Hatton and Herman and Murray and Moberly and Rocheport and Versailles and Wooldridge and Kingdom City and Inglewood and lots of other places around Mid-Missouri and I appreciate you listening tonight. My name is Mike Hagan. I'm your host every week on Radio Orbit and tonight my guest is Kent Stedman, my friend and guru from cyberspaceorbit.com. We've been talking about the sun primarily, but uh, we've also been talking about uh, just in general how wacky things are right now and how um, we seem to be having to use our imaginations more than anything right now, Kent, uh, because the uh, the old ways of figuring things out just don't seem to be adding up right now. What do you th- What do you think? Well, how about if I tell you an old coot tale? Yeah, let's have a let's have an old bard story. You know, we've got a lot of things to look at here in, in terms of uh, what's being handed to us through the instruments of science and what we're, we're getting to see through wondrous things like a spacecraft out many miles away trained on the sun. But uh, like you said, there's a lot of uh, powerful change going on and it makes, it raises the issue, how do we look at all this? And what, what layers of perception do we bring into it? And, uh, you know, do we look through telescopes and simply jot it down and analyze it, or, or are we allowed within our cultural reality to go out there and look with our feelings and our intuition? You know, how are we going to move into this, this, these new realities, which people like Terence McKenna, who, and what's his brother's name? I forgot. Uh, Dennis. Dennis, so they discussed on your radio show, and I've also dared to put out some of my experiences in prior, <laughs> prior uh, interviews. But uh, let me tell you something that happened to me <laughs> once, and I'll toss this out to your audience, and here goes nothing, okay? Yeah, sit back, people. This will be good. Trust me. Yeah, so pull your chair up to the pot belly stove. <laughs> I want to tell you something. Right. It was about mid-70s. I was an art professor at Fresno City College in Fresno, California. And that was a time of incredible uh, search and quest going on during the Vietnam conflict. People were, as I'm sure they will soon here again, were really trying to evaluate themselves and, and, and try to understand their position on this, in this nation and on this world and within the universe. Well, a couple of my students, uh, younger kids, came and said, listen, we're going up to this camp. And, in fact, it's called the Far Horizons Camp. It's up in the Sequoia National Park in a really magical setting in the big sequoia trees, you know, ancient. Right, right, right. (laughs) Something out of Lombardia or something. And it's a theosophical camp. Well, I'm not a theosophist. I'm really not anything. I've sort of wanted from 10 to 10, you know. <laughs> Me too, I know. <laughs> yeah. I wanted from 10 to 10 based on experiences that I've had that I need to find answers for. 
So we go up a camp in this uh, theosophical camp, and here are people that are uh, either connected to or are moving to the theosophical society, and it's sort of a clearinghouse for different ways of thinking, you know, including, uh, for instance, while we're up there, a lot of Tibetan Buddhists were up there, and people that have been to India and people from sort of a Western mystical uh, quest, and, you know, well, in the midst of it all, here was this top-flight scientist <laughs> who happened to be camping next to my camp. You know, we were camping out. Right, right. And, and uh, this guy was really interesting. He looked kind of like Arthur C. Clarke in a way, you know, in his youth, you might say. He was just tall, uh, uh, powerfully built. Man and his, his wife. Now, I'm going to tell you his name. His name was Ron Crumb. Because, Ron, if you're out there, or if you're still kicking, he's older than me. If you're out there, I'd really like to talk again and find out what's going on with your your pursuits. And uh, anyway, as I recall, and I hope I get my story straight, because it's been a long time. It's been the mid-70s. Ron, uh, Ron explained to us, introduced himself, and explained to us that he was a, uh, an engineer uh, working for General Motors, subcontracting under NASA. And the more I queried, the more I found out that he was he was the designer, the master designer of the onboard computer systems for the Apollo spacecraft. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, Ron invented how. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, you've got to go back and see the movie 2001 Space Odyssey. Right. That's one that's, that's, one that's worth it uh, for everyone to go back and watch again, I think. So, anyway, go well, on. He was, he was the guy that invented the, the semi intelligent systems, computer systems, you know, which are still, by the way, guiding some of our older spacecraft out there, like the Pioneer series and so on. They're still going on, and their level of intelligence still navigating through the universe, fine as can be. Making decisions, you know, based on their program and so on. Right, right. And he was in on it. And so, man, uh, I was with a group of friends, sort of uh, artist types, and inquisitive types. And so what would you do if you had a, a guy like this camp next to you? What would you ask him? And, you know, well, what I asked him was, what the heck's going on? Well, I mean, what's, what are you seeing that us people, ordinary people, don't get to see, you know? Right. I asked him about, uh, guess what, UFOs. Mm -hmm, <laughs> I said, mm -hmm. what do you know about UFOs? And he said, oh, yeah, he said they're a... Uh, definite presence on the planet right now I said uh, many theories uh, some trickle down to my level of, you know where I'm at he said uh, some don't but he, he says they're, they're an event they're a series of events to reckon with we can't make them go away right. but he said you know what he said that's not the important stuff <laughs> and so I said well Excuse me, but what's the important stuff? 
And then he proceeded to not only tell us, but show us about looking into the universe, you know, full speed ahead with the mind itself. With the mind itself. And he said, that's what's going on. Now, we've heard about remote viewing. Maybe you could give a description for me while I'm trying to remember the rest of the story. What's remote viewing in Um, your... uh, well, in my in my uh, estimation, remote viewing is uh, a sort of regimented way to train the mind, as opposed to and, and the reason I say regimented as opposed to just sort of a simple meditation or something. Uh, there's actually a series of uh, of uh, um, procedural things that you go through, and uh, to put the mind in a particular state of uh, a trance is a good way uh, to describe it, I guess. But the bottom line is the result and the goal and objective of this whole thing is to move the mind outside of the rational linear space-time continuum that we exist in and to somehow be able to uh, transcend that and then go to other places along that line uh, and uh, and be able to gather information such as imagery. Uh, these guys uh, uh, back in the back in the day, guys like Joe McMonagall and uh, people have probably heard of Ed Dames and uh, um, Ingo Swan and of course Hal uh, Hal Putoff, who I've been trying to get on this program and uh, he's not uh, being very cooperative right now. Uh, but uh, anyway, he was running that program uh, in the in the 70s. But anyway, the bottom line is to be able to move outside of our uh, uh, our, our realm of uh, perception and be able to go elsewhere in time and be able to grab legitimate, practical information, uh, whether it's uh, in the uh, whether it's digital or whether it's an image or whether it's words or whatever. These guys and girls seem to be able to be able to go out and uh, and get information from sort of out of the collective unconscious or the, uh, uh, the, the the universal mind or whatever you want to call it. So, Well, yes, and Dr. Crum was a, the kind, he's the type of guy that you don't just dismiss, you know, because he, mm-hmm. he was, mm-hmm. not only was he on the inside of a very important stage of our uh, development in the 20th century, back in the 20th century, that's <laughs> yeah. forgetting it's the 21st century. No kidding, back in the 20th century. But he had also traveled all around the world. He knew top researchers. You know, they were in communication all the time, uh, whether engineers or, or physicists or astrophysicists. He was also, uh, uh, had trained himself, you know, on the higher levels of the martial arts. Mm-hmm. And so he had not only studied the discipline, but also the philosophy behind the discipline. He was an amazing guy, you know. Right. And so he's, he's saying, well, if you want to look through a telescope, you know, and he, this is more important than, than making spaceships go into space. He said it's more important than the UFO phenomenon. It's considered really significant that if you want to really uh, regard the cosmos in terms of everything you've got, in terms of the way your brain works, the way your perception works. He says you've got to consider the mind itself as mm-hmm. as your aperture, you know, 
your telescope. So they were doing remote viewing you know, way back then, long time before it became popularized on the radio talk shows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they were very, very serious about it. And in other words, taking, uh, you know, the mind has various levels, and when you're, <clears throat> when you're up, let me divert a bit, but when you're up sort of doing business, business of life, you're in a certain frequency range called the beta range. You know, high frequency level of mind activity. That's when you know, the cop pulls you over and you're thinking real quick. You know, okay. you're doing all when <laughs> you got an IRS audit or something going on. You're in beta, but as you relax into the deeper states, you know, say toward the, the, the uh, a relaxed but non-sleeping state, it's called the alpha state, right. slower rhythm, alpha wave, and then you go down to the theta and the delta wave regions, you know, which seem less and less from our notion of the way the mind works, we call it sleep, you know. But what he had begun to do was consciously, without falling asleep, or with, I mean the delta is almost comatose, to navigate these levels of experience without losing consciousness. Hmm. So that, you see... To me, that implied another level, a whole other level of perception that is beyond even the, the brainwave levels, you know, something inside of oneself that is the true navigator that is allowed to witness these deeper states consciously. Right. <laughs> you know? Incredible. And we call it lots of different things now. For instance, you've heard the term lucid dreaming. Sure. So anyway, we talked about it philosophically for a while in the evening. It was getting toward evening. We built a campfire, and I said, "Well, hang it. How does it work? You know, right. show us. Right. Right. <laughs> show me. Show me." So, so he proceeded. He sat down. He pulled up a, his camp stool. He sat down on his camp stool in front of the fire, and he closed his eyes. And he says, "Okay, just as a demonstration of one." tiny little slice of what this can mean and what it can be. He says, I'm very interested in remotely diagnosing people's illness with the intention of maybe uh, helping them out along the line, you know, as, a, as an appendage to uh, traditional medicine. And uh, he, he says, give me the name of somebody you know that you, that, that's uh, suffering from a, a medical malady. Okay. And uh, he said, I, he said, I don't want to know a lot about it. He says, in fact, he said, give me their name, their their age, and their location. And <clears throat> then he closes his eyes, and he starts manipulating his hands in front of him, you know, out in front of him in a sort of strange way. I didn't quite get what was going on until later. But there were four or five of us local yokels, and we each gave them the name of somebody we knew that was ill. And then he'd go through their their lymphatic system, their circulatory system, the various conditions of their organs, you know. And we each knew what these people were, were experiencing suffering from, what the uh, clinical diagnosis was. Well, we didn't tell him. We hmm. just told him who they were, a name, right. where they lived, and their age. That was all the clues he needed, you know. Then he began to, in very detailed, case by case, and there were, there were four or five of us, each gave him a case, sitting there on a camp stool with his eyes closed. He was diagnosing 
the the uh, physical condition of people he'd never met. Unreal. And then at the end of it, he'd say, "Well, that in my case, I gave him the name of somebody I knew really well, a relative, matter of fact." And he said, "Well, he has Parkinson's disease," which he did. And he repeated this diagnosis four or five times. I was there, and, and my wife was there, and, and two really close friends. And we each gave him a different uh, case. Well, and hey, so then it, Kent, was was <laughs> let me jump in. Was that related to the so-called Silva method? Uh, yes, but I think what was called the Silva method came later, and these cats were okay. who were working out the technology before Silva came. Amazing. Well, you know, it strikes me because you said that uh, when you asked him about the 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 so-called UFO phenomenon, and he said, "Well, yeah, it's a real thing, but that's not the big thing." <laughs> right? no, it was. He was right. And he was right. No. You, you know, you uh, you mentioned Terrence before, and I'll never forget one time Terrence said, as sort of a joke, one time he said, "You know, they've disguised it as an alien invasion." so as not to scare people with what's really going on. <laughs> yeah, well, Ron and his group, you know, and they later invented a, a more, uh, uh, they put together what he was working on then back in the mid-70s. I understand they took it even further with some real, sort of like a think tank of really notable people that carried the research further. Hmm. Had a name, but it dawned if I can remember what it was. I can't, uh, he was in San Jose, I was in Fresno, and I'd get these messages back and forth from him. But I never really met him again, uh, except one more time. Because after he had made this demonstration of, let's call it remote viewing, okay? Okay. Although I don't think he called it that. All right. It was an experiment within the psychophysical nature of the mind is what it was. And... Uh, <clears throat> So what do you say after you witness something like that? What do you, what do you say? <laughs> you say, how the heck did you do that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Show us how you did that. <clears throat> and he said, well, I'll tell you what. He says, if you're really serious about it, he says, I'll be back here in this camp in one year. <laughs> grumble, grumble, grumble. One year? What do you mean one year? And he says, if you're really serious, if this if this inquiry of yours is serious and not flippant, you know, you come back here in one year, and in in and then I'll show you how it's done. Okay. <laughs> so did you go back? One year later, <laughs> we were back there, the whole group, and Ron then trained us in the methodology involved, and it was amazing. And it's affected me to this day. <laughs> affected me to this day. Hmm. Now, should we start with that, or do you want to take a break, or should we keep going a little bit? Well, you know what? I think we will take a break, because I need I need a few minutes just to uh, to digest that, um, because I have a lot yeah, of... I'm going to take a, I'm gonna take a quick away break, too, but I'll be here if I... I'll be here when you come back. Yeah, let's let's do that. But this is uh I'm gonna go pace around the room a little bit because uh this uh you know, what I'm about to tell you now is really startling information. It changed my life and it continues to change my life. 
All right. Well, that's what uh, that's what I want to hear about because I know you've shared some of this stuff with me in the past, but I don't think uh, I think we're going to go someplace we haven't been. So anyway, we'll be back in a minute. In the meantime, uh, you're listening to the tragically hip here. This is called Thugs from Day for Night. We'll be back in a minute. This is Mike on Radio Orbit. My guest is Kent Stedman from www.cyberspaceorbit.com. Kent, uh, as always, sharing some fascinating and interesting and important uh, information. Stick around. We'll be back in about five minutes.
tragically hip from day for night it was thugs and uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN this is Mike Hagan and my guest is Kent Stedman Kent where were we it was uh, quite an interesting uh, conversation we were just uh, getting into I think uh, I think I'm ready I took a deep breath and had some water and cleared my head so I'm ready to hear a little bit more about what you were talking about before the yeah, break yeah that's what I did got me a cup of water here well, we're talking about uh, it's an old saying from Toth, you know, who was the author of the uh, Emerald Tablet. Right, the Hermetic. man looks well into the mind and its mysteries, for therein lies the secret of immortality. Well, Dr. Crumb called it telescope of the mind, you know, and he began to unravel that it's really the only instrument that we have, because even our technology, you know, percolates out of mind itself, you know, it's sort of a manifestation of mind, and what they were beginning to do at his level was to to explore the mind itself, and uh, what is it, what does it do, you know, and this is prior to remote viewing and prior to some of the other techniques that came along called silver mind control. In fact, he probably, this is a group of uh, uh, academics and uh, scholars that were exploring this you know, on their own right. back in the 60s and 70s when a lot of exploration was taking place. So anyway, a year later we went back to meet up with old Doc Crum and he said, now look, he said, we've got to make some agreements here before I show you this stuff. He says, first of all, he says, we're going to do something that is similar to classical hypnosis. He says, with one exception. He said, you do not lose consciousness. Hmm. That, in other words, the, he says, I'm going to be your group leader on this, but think of me as sort of like Captain Kirk. You know, and, and the Starship Enterprise, he says, uh, he says, I'm going to take you into some spaces that I've been and others like me have been before. But I, I don't want to, he said, with your agreement, do, do this. He said, you don't want to do this, you know, I deal with that here. Right. None of us left. <laughs> and he said, but uh, what the objective here is to stay lucid. And he said, what we're going to do is learn to navigate through different states of perception, which we all go through in the 24-hour cycle. But he said, we're not going to lose the strand of consciousness. Okay. In other words, we're going to go there as a witness through the levels of the mind. And he said, we're going to do this in a way that is neutral, that isn't emotionally charged. And he says, the best way I can think of is this way. And then for a day, he had us practice by counting backwards <laughs> from seven to one, okay? Sort of like when they try hypnotizing and they say, watch, you watch, you know, and then count backwards. Uh -huh. But he'd have, he'd, he'd say, I want you to visualize each number, like the number seven, boldly, in, in a, in, and he added the, 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 the bands of the rainbow to it. He said, I want you to visualize a red seven, oh. and then an orange six, and then a and yellow, yellow five, right, right, right. green four, green, right. blue, violet, white light, you know. Mm -hmm. And as you do so, he said, 
through the power of agreed-upon suggestion and mutual experimentation, you will be going deeper and deeper into the various uh, brain waves of the mind. But he said, don't lose consciousness. He said, I might not be at you with a stick. If you do that. <laughs> <laughs> so we did it over and over and over again, which sounds elementary, you know, and rather boring, but it wasn't because as we proceeded to count down from seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and doing it over and over, and then he'd add, with our agreement, the power of suggestion, you know, to actually indeed go into the deeper levels of the mind. After a day of doing this, I'm talking about a long day, right. 10-hour day, you began to feel like you are in some kind of uh, elevator shaft, you know. You began to have that sensation, even in the pit of your stomach. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because after a while, you could go seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and visualizing each letter and it's in a different color of the rainbow and then you could do it quickly you know seven six five four three two one you had even a sensation of vertical going down 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 into the quieter space of the mind and yeah so you know at first i'd I'd find myself zonking out you know as the countdown went on he'd say okay now we got to work on this there's a group of uh, five of us. We've got to work on this now. You stay conscious. You know? mm-hmm. So that was the hardest stay part about because, it. Huh? Was that the most difficult part of it, trying to stay lucid as you were doing it? Yeah, probably just by telling you this over the telephone. Right. God, you almost put me in the zone right there. I was like, what is this? Well, the zone... Is there, but the, the the objective is to stay conscious. Okay. Okay. Well, that took place a whole day, and we wondered, well, what's this going to lead to? And he said, Yeah, it's going to lead to something. And so we went and had a nice rest at night. It was pretty easy to get a good night's sleep because he comes out of things five, four, three, two, one, and then allow yourself to go to sleep. Right. Because we're going down this elevator shaft, and we've been practicing it all day. It wasn't really that rigorous. It only took a day, come to think of it, to learn to stay lucid using that sort of neutral counting system, which sounds a lot like hypnosis, doesn't it? Sure, sure does. There's one difference. There's one difference. You're going there with with a mutual agreement, and he's not allowing you to lose consciousness. Right, right. And the the hypnotist doesn't have control of you, per se. It's like you say, it's it's a... it's a binary agreement, and you're both going there under your own volition, and you're staying lucid in the midst of it, apparently. So, Yes. The following day, we all showed up back in this little cabin in this beautiful setting up in the Sequoia National Park. And he says, okay, we're going to take this to a new stage. I mean, and now, let's see, how shall I describe this? Huh. Have you ever heard the stories of uh, people that were, for instance, captured by an enemy in Vietnam so on I had to spend long periods of time in isolation sometimes in very uncomfortable settings <laughs> yeah sure of course unfortunately and in order to stay sane they would like do something mentally uh, for instance I recall a story a guy told me when he got back from mom he'd been a POW and he said you know what kept me sane said, while I was in that little cage he said i built myself an entire farm <laughs> that I always wanted this ranch, this farm. 
said, so in my mind, I, every day, I did in my mind what it would take a day to do. And I dreamed my ranch into existence. That's what he said. Wow. Well, that's what Dr. Crum said. He said, look, we're going to build a space station in the mind, a way station, placed down in the alpha theta level where we can pull things in and out, you know. A, a, a sort of a, well, here's how specifically what he had us do. He had us each pick uh, an environment. A place somewhere that we feel comfortable with, like on Earth, you know. Right. And so I picked a high desert mesa, you know, in my mind. It's something that I liked, you know. And people did other things. Some were in the green forest, some were on islands out in the agency or something like that. Pick this environment and visualize it, you know. And he had us work on that visualization for a while, a set and a setting. So, you know, I could, uh, and he'd have us count down to that position, you know. He said, we're building, once again, he said, we're building a space station in the mind, okay? Okay. Like the ISS of the mind, <laughs> the International Space Station in the mind. All right. He said, now, he said, I want you to construct, after we had it pretty well visualized, and trust me, we were in alpha at that time. The reason I know we were in the alpha state is because later I got a hold of one of these uh, alpha pacers, you know, that actually reads out the, the uh, particular state of rhythm of your brain waves, and you can see it in front of you. And I did some of his, uh, really later on, I did some of his uh, exercises, was able to indeed watch myself go down and to produce the alpha rhythms, you know. Right, right, right. And uh, biofeedback. Right, and that's something you could watch. And you could watch that little gadget in real time and tell where you were. Yeah. Okay. All right. But I, you know, that occurred to me a year later sure, when, sure, I, sure. when so, somebody at the college got one of these units. Right. <laughs> so then he said, "I want you to very systematically and don't jump ahead of yourself. Take your time and relish it." He said, "I want you to build a, a workshop." So, uh, and it was our choice, you know. We're in the alpha level, alpha theta, right on the fringe there, and we right, were constructing right. them like that POW did in Vietnam. Okay. We were constructing a workshop. And I built a dome. <laughs> piece by piece, I built a dome. And then he suggested uh, that we begin to furnish the dome, and this was later in the afternoon. This took a whole day. We weren't just racing through this, you know. We were very systematically doing this stuff, and also checking checking back that we were staying lucid doing it. Hey, Kent, let me and, ask you. Uh, let me ask you a question. When when you uh, in your in your mind were building the dome, you mentioned that you uh, you put it together piece by piece. You said, "Was yeah. how? Give me an idea on." Specificity. I mean, were you down to the nuts and bolts, or were they pieces that snapped together, or, or were you? Uh... I was think of an orange. I was putting together segments like an orange. Okay. Interesting. And uh, but I, you know, upon prompt, uh, both his prompt and he said, "Take your time," you know. And you know, I skinned it on the outside. You know, I laid the foundation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I skinned it on. The, uh, I put. The 
sections of it that seemed to be like pieces, segments of an orange. But then I skinned it with the material that I invented that was really sparkly, white, reflective of sunlight. And then I skinned it on the inside. Well, I would help a person build a geodesic dome before. All right, okay. So I used some of that. Yeah, I loved Bucky Fowler, yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, or uh, Bucky, uh, um... Fuller. Bucky Fuller, yeah, yeah. So then he said, well, let's furnish your workshop, your interior space station of the mind. And he said, I'll tell you what, he says, I'm going to give you some suggestions because they're good suggestions. And, uh, you can add things or subtract things or not use them, but these are my suggestions. So he had us... He had us uh, build a sort of central location, like a comfortable chair to sit in, you know, right. uh, like a command center. And he said, also, he said, useful is a screen, you know, in front of your, in front of you, with, you know, like a big, well, theatrical, a movie screen. Right, right, big computer screen or something. And then he said, yeah. I didn't even know what a computer was. <laughs> right, right, then he said, which brings up something in a moment, I'll tell you what it is. Then he said to build some filing cabinets, places to put things, you know. And then he said, I want you to also build an elevator shaft or something that you can move 3D visualized objects in and out of your space, you know, because you're making a workshop. And then as the day progressed, he, he said, well, you know, sit down in your chair and uh, uh, let's look at the screen. And then we talked to him. You know, we're sitting there chatting like you and I are chatting. Right, right. Oh, and he gives certain suggestions, you know, as far as looking at the screen, what to see. Uh, for instance, we traveled out. We go out, you know, and uh, look at various stars and planets. And the whole time, and the whole time, and and the whole time, you're sort of balancing between these two uh, brainwave states. Yeah, but see, we trained ourselves in in the prior day to be able to handle that. Yeah, you kind of go. Sometimes you'll find yourself slipping in, but but for me, the whole process was so interesting. God, that uh, you know, because real stuff was happening. I mean, I'm naturally imaginative anyway. I've been since a child. So actually, he was... Here's a here's a, a really interesting man suggesting stuff that you love to do anyway. Right, right. He's telling you the stuff that you did as a child is actually okay. <laughs> and, it, and it, you know, it's actually... Uh, <laughs> yeah, hey, I'm going for this. You know. Right, right. It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of like grabbing hold, of, I later determined, grabbing hold of the imagination. And uh, rather than having it drift around, you know, like a bunch of bees buzzing in your head, take control of it. Right, right. So he'd have us look at things on the screen. He'd say, okay, that's enough for today. Because we were visualizing certain various things on the screen. Got to look at the galaxy (laughs) on our screen. Got to look inside the cellular structure of the human body. Things like that. Right, so this explained... Uh, a little bit, at least, about how he was able to uh, diagnose those uh, those friends of yours without uh, without knowing or seeing them or anything. Okay, and at the end of that day, this is three, four, five day workshop. I can't recall exactly. Then we go 
relax and play volleyball and have dinner and stuff after the workshop. But uh, at the end of the day, he said, now, he said, I'm going to redo what I did for you a year ago and have you give me some names and addresses of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he did it again, only this time he described what he was seeing inside of his own personal workshop while well, he was a computer designer. So a year ago, prior to that, when he had his hands out manipulating something in front of him, he was programming a computer. <laughs> he was programming the computer in his in his uh, uh, workshop, internal space station, right. and he put the info into it, you know, and uh, using his advanced knowledge of how computers work, and it would print out. <laughs> <laughs> right, so in other words, the methodology you use inside your own private workshop can be anything that you so desire, in other words, right? Correct, and that was his specific uh, interest at the time, you know. So you know, you to, know, Ken, you you're know. blowing my mind, you know. Um, and we're, I, I have to play a song here in a minute because, it, because the song is relevant, but, you know, the concept of the Philosopher's Stone... Mm. What you're describing is it, uh, because to me, the Philosopher's Stone, you know, that old alchemical idea, was that which provided everything. In other words, if you were hungry, you ate it. If you were dirty, you showered under it. If you had to go somewhere, you got upon it and flew there. Um, and that's exactly what you're describing to me. Well, you want to play a song before we go to day three? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, th this is a short song. It's only three minutes long, but I want to I want to play it. It's called "A Cloak of Elven Kind," and it's yeah, by it. it's by another uh, it's by another Seattle band called Marcy Playground. But it's perfectly relevant to what we're talking about. We'll come back. We'll have about ten minutes or so left uh, uh, with Kent Stedman from Cyberspace Orbit. So Kent, uh, figure out a way to wrap this up. But I think we need to yeah, talk about the imagination. It's the imagination, and 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 we're there. So. Okay, uh, back in a minute, Marcy Playground. This is A Cloak of Elven Kind. Speaking of magic, we'll be back with Kent Stedman in just a few moments. Radio Orbit, KOPN. Yeah. 
Playground, a coke of elven kind. All right, Kent. Uh, sorry, I had to sneak hey, that in. Wrap it up. Yeah, let's wrap it up. But my God, we got uh, we 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 just got somewhere. I think in the last uh, thirty minutes for sure. That was real important. What we just talked about. I think. Well, we took a dog leg twist. We usually do that. Yeah, we tend to do that, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, day three, day three, had us. We had breakfast we went sat down in the room we counted down from seven to one we went into our into our stations we were sort of i was tripping around looking at my screen and filing information in my filing cabinet so and he says now he he says uh get ready for what well we'd made certain agreements all the way through this he was very careful about making agreements especially the agreement that maintain lucidity and to be in charge okay all right of your own visualization your own inner world and so this was sort of surprising but not too surprising based on the chats we've had at the debated level you know because now we're in the alpha brainwave fully lucid sitting in a sitting in my dome. There are other people in different places. And uh, he said, uh, meet your assistant. He had us turn toward the elevator shaft. You know, that he had suggested that we install in our interior space station. He said, meet your assistant. Meet your assistant. Your assistant. <sighs> okay. And then what happened? <clears throat> and oh my gosh. Materializing in my <laughs> in my uh, star chamber, you might say. Excuse me, a second. <laughs> had to cough, probably from nervous. <laughs> Materializing in front of me was this magnificent elderly gentleman. You know, dressed in long robes. He was druidic. It was a druid. Now, you know, I'd always been fascinated with King Arthur and Knights of the Round Table and so on, but I was still a little bit unprepared. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Because Merlin, or some dressed in sort of a, a soft crimson, you know, it was a pleasant color. This old bearded man comes out and embraces him. 
Hello. He said, I'm your assistant and your teacher. And he, said, I'm a, and he said, I'm not too far away from who you are. You seem like a separate entity, you know? Mm-hmm. At the same time, this old, imagined, visualized man said, I'm a correspondent. I'm like it's I'm of your tribe, of your consciousness. You know? huh. And... Uh, we only got a few minutes left, but let me say this. There are other people like me that have had similar experiences, and what it is is a truly metaphysical journey into the mind itself, you know, involving very precise techniques. And, uh, you know, I don't use it all the time and so on, but it, it has influenced my life. That old gentleman would it sometimes appear in my dreams you know, and say, I got a mission for you. There's another time where he'd appear very harmlessly. I always look forward to, to it in a state of meditation. Say, well, I, we're going to an island in the, off the coast of somewhere in beautiful green water, and he says, I'm going to teach you some more principles, and then he'd teach you more principles. And, mm-hmm. You know, he always, this old visualized man, always thought of me as very impatient. You know, always trying to <laughs> slow me down. <laughs> yeah. But, well, uh, man, incredible story, and uh, you know, this is the dynamic of the mind, and I, you know, it's something that should be out for everybody to at least consider. Right. At least consider. Right. Well, I agree, and it, it, you know, it, it goes back to what we were talking about maybe an hour ago. That that, um. You know, are we just supposed to look through telescopes and look through these instruments and just write down what we see? Or are we supposed to recognize that all of these things are um, concretized ideas that, we, that come out of the imagination and are built and, uh, and, and brought into reality with human hands? You know, the... Language is another big part of that, in that the world is made of language. You know, we, you, you can't describe, if you can't describe something, well, then you can't go there. So um, all of these ideas go right back and tie into the imagination. And I think that the world is now in the hands right now. I, th- I think that, I think that, you know, it almost appears like the, the, the hands are off the wheel, and and the and now it's in in the hands of the wizards and and the uh, um, the people that are capable of doing these things that you're talking about, and they're on uh, all different sides with all different agendas and these sorts of things. So um, yeah, the agenda can go dark. We just got right, a lot. Right, the, the, the agenda can go dark. either way, and so that we made. An, and we made commitments, you know, part of the uh, metaphysical devices we're using were recognition of the fact that uh, something like this could uh, you could use to enslave people's minds. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, the, pro- the, the objective, let me say it one more time, is lucidity. Lucidity in the mind and willingness to explore what mind is. Well... 
All right. Well, there you have it. And uh, I think it's a great, uh, uh, great opportunity for some people to learn some stuff here. And uh, that is the key, Kent, because, you know, if you don't, uh, uh, if you don't dream your own dream and use your own imagination, you can damn well be sure that you're going to be, be part of somebody else's. And uh, that other person's dream might not be the one that you like. So I would suggest to everyone that you do some of this uh, uh, research and look into these ideas of uh, empowering your own mind and learning about the mysteries of the human mind and the human body because this is where it all lies. As Kent has made very clear tonight, everything comes from the mind. All of our devices, all of our language, all of our experience, it's nothing if you remove the mind from the equation. So, um, absolutely incredible stuff, as always, Kent. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, take control of who you are. All the dimensions of who you are. Don't yield the control, but take control. That's right. Or navigate, be brave, be brave. Try not to be stupid, <laughs> you know, be brave. Uh, don't allow, uh, you know, Use discernment and use what comes from the heart and use consciousness, conscience. But don't be afraid to explore who we are, you know, at all levels. That's what I'd say. I agree with you. And fully. do it in your own way too. Do it in your own way. Yep. You know, if it's if there's one thing uh, that I've learned, it's that nature loves courage, and nature proves that she loves courage because when you do do what you just said when you don't be afraid when you're not afraid and when you're when you take that that leap of faith nature will reward you by removing obstacles and i've seen it happen uh not only in my own life but uh, in many other examples so i agree kent use the imagination don't be afraid and uh and use your heart at the same time i guess i would add so there are different procedures. Writers do it when they write. Writing a novel is a real journey. Artists do it when they do art. You know, philosophers do it when they philosopher. Mathematicians do it in their formulas. You know. Right, right, right. The recognition of what's going on is important. Yep, the masks of God, I think uh, Joseph Campbell called it, and there were thousands of them. So, All right, well, Ken, I wish we had another two hours to talk. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, we probably do because I've got to stay here, believe it or not, and do another two hours of radio from 5 to 7 because the uh, woman who normally does the show is not going to be here this morning, but uh, it's a little bit of a different uh, different stroke than uh, than we've been doing for the last few hours. So let me say thanks, as always. You're a wonderful guest and a great friend. And, again, happy birthday to you and uh, and to your lovely wife and, uh, and to the whole tribe back there, okay? Okay. Right. Always great. Yeah, as, as as always, it was wonderful. We'll do this again, um, I don't know, you know, it's usually four or six weeks or so, and it's, uh, it uh, seems like we just gravitate, you know, gravitate back to it. So we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again real soon, okay? Okay, thanks. Take care, Kent. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Kent Stedman from cyberspaceorbit.com. We're running out of time here. We'll finish things off with the Verve Pipe. Uh, come back and listen again next week, 2 a.m., uh, on Sunday morning, as always, Radio Orbit. Uh, check us out on the web. You can listen to all these programs from the archives, www.radioorbit.com. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to be doing, I think I'm going to do a little bit, uh, do something different, a special show for, um, for the heart and for uh, Valentine's Day. So we'll do 
we'll do something uh, special. Not sure what. But anyway, thanks for listening as always. This is Mike. I'll talk to you next week. And in the meantime, this is the Verve Pipe uh, from Villains. It's called Veneer. Yeah.